This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Laura Jean Truman. She blogs over at her blog titled In Between, which can be found at laurajeantruman.com. In this conversation, Laura Jean and I talk about her life, how the way we view our past changes over time, her experience being queer in a non-affirming church, and why she remains engaged with Christianity after all this time. It's a really great conversation. You'll notice, though, that my audience is a little rougher. That's because my computer really basically conspired against me and recorded using the laptop mic instead of my external mic, even though I was hearing myself through the external mic the entire time. But I'm not mad about it. I already tweeted about it, so clearly I have it on my system. Anyways, um, I'm going to invert the order of things here at the, uh, as far as plugging things here at the beginning, just for funsies, and ask that you rate and review the show on iTunes here at the top. You can also support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. You can join the Exvangelical Facebook group by searching for Exvangelical on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter at exvangelicalpod and follow me on Twitter at brchastain. All right, let's get into it. Hi everyone, welcome to Exvangelical. I have with me this week, Laura Jean Truman. She is the blogger at laurajeantruman.com. Her blog is titled In Between, and I'm really happy to have her with me today. Welcome to the show, Laura Jean. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be here. Oh, thank you very much. I'm really glad we were able to talk. Um, let's start just with learning a little bit more about you. Um, on your blog, you mentioned that you're from the Northeast, but have recently moved to the South. Um, what what part of the Northeast did you grow up in? Um, I grew up in rural New Hampshire, um, about an hour and a half north of Boston in Barrington, New Hampshire, which is has more moose than people. I think that's <laughs> an exaggeration. I think the population is 8,000. Um, very, very small rural town in the Northeast. And I went to college there, the University of New Hampshire as well. Oh, okay. Um, so this rural uh, town, was it um, just, was it, I mean, I grew up in a small town in Indiana, so I'm guessing it, it <laughs> might be um, similar as far as being, was it similar as far as being mostly predominantly whites or? Yes, yes. Um, I think I think the statistics on New Hampshire are it's I think ninety eight point two or ninety eight point five white. Oh, um, wow. yes. yes, and then the other two percent under two percent is every other ethnicity. So black, Latino, Latina, um, Asian is mm-hmm. all two percent of New Hampshire's population. So incredibly, incredibly white state. Um, so when you're when you're talking about evangelical subculture, is already pretty white growing mm-hmm. up. Hampshire kind of compounds the the whiteness and the assumption of whiteness that's mm. in the, in the subculture. Yeah. So, were you did your family attend uh, church just throughout your childhood? Was that a constant yeah. for you? 
Yeah, that was that was always something um, that we did. The church that I was born into was actually a mainline Methodist church. Hey, me um, too. All right. <laughs> Methodists represent. Um, That's right. Oh, because I went to Candler School of Theology, which is a Methodist institution for my graduate degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so Methodists all around and bookending my religious life. Mm-hmm. Um, but pretty shortly after that, we started attending an evangelical church, a um, evangelical free church. And the idea behind free was that on the main points of theological doctrine, the church wouldn't take a stand. The church said, we're going to let you all believe what you believe about atonement theories or, you know, how, when the resurrection, not when the resurrection will happen, um, the end of days, what will happen with the end of days, all of those sorts of things. We're going to let you all believe, and we're just going to preach, you know, quote, the basics, um, mm-hmm. you know, isn't really ever how it turns out, is it? Um, <laughs> so but, yeah. was, did the basics sort of default to the sort of things that are generally accepted within evangelicalism? Yeah, yeah. So, so pretty much all of the things, the, you know, I was homeschooled all the way through high school. I didn't go to school until college. Um, there was, you know, purity subculture. There was creationism in my textbooks. Um, nationalism was everywhere. Flags in the pulpits. Um, I was actually, as a kid, I was in a commercial for the GOP candidate for governor at one point um, because he went and recruited a whole bunch of homeschooling kids in the area to come and be in his um, in his commercial. Was it I don't specifically know, but, for homeschooling or like the right no, to homeschool? It was, just, yeah. it was it was for his run for office. Um, I know, right? <laughs> very strange. Um you know, I had a picture of Ronald Reagan on my wall, literally. Um, you know, we were all very excited about George W. Bush because he had a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, you know, we did all the things with the anti-choice clinic in the town. It was lots of complementarianism and no lady pastors. Um, you know, you know the greatest hits of fundamentalism. <laughs> but, you know, we were we were a free church, so we, we didn't take a stand on things except... <laughs> That women can't be pastors and that being gay was wrong and that abortion was a sin. So was that buy-in like 100% sort of within the congregation and the leadership? Or was there some sort of, I don't know, like remnant or or minority voice (laughs) that was being represented um, amongst the congregation your family was a part of? Um, You know, that's a good question. I mean... and yeah. I'm not even sure whether you would be cognizant of something like that when you're yeah. when you're a kid, um, or, or growing up. I'm not I'm not sure to what degree that sort of stuff was discussed. You know, I would say um, I would actually say, interestingly enough, that my my parents were as close to a, a remnant as. I think those spaces had at the time Mm -hmm. Um, because my mom ended up in homeschooling subculture kind of by accident. She was a, um, an educator, very interested in pedagogy still is writing, reading, um, how kids learn to read, how kids learn to write. She loved all of that. Mm -hmm. So she got into homeschooling because she was interested in, in pedagogy and, and children's learning process. But then the only people homeschooling at the time were the fundamentalists, um, and so I think she kind of ended up by default or by accident 
in a group of people that were much more religiously conservative than her at the time, mm-hmm. um, but were very strong will. You know, if there's one thing that fundamentalists can do, it's, um, you know, come at the world with the assumption that if, if you aren't believing these particular things, not only are you not right, but you are not a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you are in or you are out. You either have the answer to this particular set of questions or you're just wrong. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no, if you don't have the answer, the, the questions are still part of it. It's no, a question means you're wrong. And so, of course, you know, my mom didn't want to be wrong about any of those important things. Um, right. Yeah. And so, so I think some of my early memories were, you know, talking about these sorts of things in my home. Mm-hmm. Not enough that we got out of that subculture, but enough that it was it was a conversation about what it meant. Um, yeah. And my dad, bless, my dad is a mystic. Um, he's very, very conservative, conservative politically, conservative theologically, biblical literalist. But he reads a lot of Richard Rohr these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think having having that in and around this very fundamentalist homeschooling space, I wasn't critiquing the space when I was 12, but I think I was gathering the tools to critique the space. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds – the way you describe it, it sounds like it, um, there was an awareness of the environment sort of. Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, um, something I remember is I I read Harry Potter as a kid. I read the first three books and loved it. Mm-hmm. And my mom thought, you know, that's fine. That's great. And then there was a big hoopla. I actually write about this somewhere on my blog. There was a big hoopla about how Harry Potter was very, very bad. And so for a couple months when the fourth book came out, I wasn't allowed to read Harry Potter but only for about three months. So I was, my mom decided that, that if this was incorrect, this was wrong, this was leading down a terrible path. And then after three or four months, she changed her mind and thought, you know, this is, this is fiction and this is fantasy and we want our children to be creative learners. Um, and so I was allowed to read it again, which I think is really representative of my whole growing up was we buy the Josh Harris book and we say, yes, we are going to kiss dating goodbye. Absolutely. And then a year later, we'd buy another book that would be about how there's a healthy way for Christians to date and we should try it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of ping-ponging back and forth between fundamentalism and maybe there's something else was really representative of my of my middle school and high school years. Mm-hmm. Did you find that um, more sort of liberating or more sort of confusing? Um. You know, looking back, <laughs> looking back, I'm I'm sure it was a lot more confusing than I give it credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's it's really interesting. I think about this a lot about how we we don't really have a story. We have the way we tell our stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the the where we decide the arc is and where we decide that something important has happened or we decide that this is a thing that shaped the way we see the world. But then every year I find when I go back and I retell my story of growing up, something has kind of changed about it. Mm, Yeah. 
Um, and that's, that's really fascinating to me. And it makes it sometimes hard to feel authentic when you tell your story and you're like, ah, oh, this is a different story than I told last <laughs> year. That's <laughs> like, really... am I lying? Am I just making up stories? Um, but I think so much of how we tell a story depends on where our position is in the moment that we're in. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, if you're in a relationship and, um, you, in the first month you're dating, you tell about the first time you met really differently than you tell about the first time you met after you break up. Right. You know, like it has a different significance on your life. And so you tell it differently. And so, yeah, you know, looking back at growing up fundamentalist evangelical, I think, I think four years ago, I would have told that story as a story of being in this incredibly repressive, restrictive, fundamentalist subculture. And then, you know, weaving my way out of it and breaking free, which is true. You know, that, that is true. That is a lot of what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, but also like, as I get older and look back and see how we were kind of weaving in and out of it always and what effect that had on me and continues to have on me as I think about what it means to be committed to a community, what it means to be committed to a religious experience um, and how that weaving has kind of changed how I see religion in ways that I haven't really fully examined yet, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting insight as far as the the way in which you remember your past experience changing over time. I mean, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, it makes me think of like a couple of different examples one from fiction, one from actually, interestingly, I don't usually make these <laughs> these uh, references in my mind, but um, one from fiction and being, um, say, for example, like in, in comic books, they reboot the universe or whatever. Yeah, or they'll, yeah. <laughs> they'll, re they'll retell the origin stories and they'll yeah. like change change little bits here and there. Like, uh, uh, and they, they might change over time. Um if someone, if they reboot Spider-Man now, Spider-Man's going to have a cell phone in, in high school or like, or whatever it might be. Or, and then the other thing that it makes me think of is actually just the differences in the stories within the gospels. Like, Oh um, my gosh. Yes. Um, and the different lenses in which, uh, those stories, which, um, which some scholars think, you know, have, have a similar root, this Q, mm -hmm. like, like the Q source or, or something else. Yeah. Um, but they're these, they're, they're called look, synoptic means look like, you know, so they're the synoptic gospels are these look like gospels that are telling the same thing, but in different ways. I, I'm, I'm, that's just a really fascinating insight into how someone unpacks their early years. Um, as they get older, that's, that's, that's incredible. I like that a lot. <laughs> I thank you. I, I really like that in terms of the gospels, because that's actually something that I religiously, I still, I'm actually on my blog, I'm writing through the book of Mark and I'm, I'm trapped because the week after this, I'm supposed to do, I think it's Mark 13, which is Jesus gives his terrible apocalyptic speeches about the destruction of the world and the destruction of the temple and, one woman will be in the field and one woman will be on the roof. And 
um, I'm panicking a little because I don't really want to write about any of this. When I said, I just want to write about Jesus. Why am I still a Christian? Cause I love Jesus. Well, not this Jesus. Um, <laughs> thinking about how, you know, some of that we look back at and say, how much of that did Jesus say? How much of that did Mark put into Jesus's mouth as a way to understand the destruction of the temple, um, as a way to talk about, the chaos in the world that Mark was seeing at that moment. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about it, are we just talking about Mark quote, making up things that Jesus said, we talking about, Oh, Mark just made this up. Jesus didn't say that. Or is Mark kind of doing this process of remembering because the past is still in motion. The story is still in motion And Mark, as current events happen, is relearning how to tell the story of Jesus through the lens of what's happening in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that is really cool and helpful for me because I had never put together that idea of storytelling in the Synoptic Gospels. Mm -hmm. You're blowing my mind! (laughs) Right back at you. (laughs) Wow. Um, Yeah. taking notes in this conversation <laughs> that helped me write this post. Cause I've been putting off Mark 13 for a couple weeks now. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know much about, um, uh, Mark 13 in particular, but one of my new Testament professors, skip it. Skip it. <laughs> one of my new, new Testament professors, um, when I was in college was, was working towards his doctorate and he wrote his doctorate on the gospel of Mark and mm. primarily about how, um, uh, there seems to be textual evidence that it was a transcription of an oral uh, mm-hmm. telling, um, which gives another interesting layer to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. So, but it, it is also, you know, like the earliest gospel. So a lot of people give it a lot of historical credence because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wading into waters that I'm, <laughs> that I'm, I'm so, I'm very out of my depth. Um, a lot of that, uh, knowledge and the little I had has probably faded a bit from <laughs> from the years ago that I took. Confidently, to and we'll all believe you. <laughs> yeah, this day and age, why not? That, exactly. Why not? <laughs> oh, um, so, uh, getting back to a little bit more about your story, right. um, <laughs> you were in this sort of environment. Um, what was what was your sort of individual relationship with religious experience like when you were when you were a kid or sort of up through high school um that that part of your life um yeah I was incredibly religious I was I was absurdly religious um shout out I don't know if anyone remembers uh the books the Elsie Dinsmore books um from when they were kids but uh they were terrible moralistic insanely racist, insanely inappropriate on all kinds of levels. Um, books written, I think, um, turn of the century, maybe even before that late 1800s about a little girl named Elsie Dinsmore, who was very, very religious. She was so religious. She wouldn't play the piano for her father on the Sabbath because it was working on the Sabbath. And at one point she passed out on the piano bench because he made her sit there and there was blood everywhere because she was so holy. She wouldn't even play the piano on the Sabbath. Um, Mm. And I love those books. (laughs) (laughs) Looking back, it's so embarrassing. But I remember 
just loving them. I wanted to be as holy as Elsie Dinsmore. I wanted to not play the piano on the Sabbath so that so much so that I would fall and have blood everywhere and be just as morally heroic as her. Um, (laughs) I don't remember a time when that wasn't a huge part of me and my identity and my sense of self. Um, You know, reading Narnia as a kid and then we had a lot of books in our house, lots, just bookcases everywhere, books just stuffed in places, um, books on chairs, just books on everything. Um, and I remember reading at a really early age, um, you know, Tozier, A.W. Tozier's work and Brennan Manning's stuff and I remember reading Confessions of Augustine before I was in high school, hmm. which was too young to read. <laughs> what was I? Who was letting me read these heavy theological books? They <laughs> were my parents. Um, so I, I don't ever. And I was kind of an isolated kid. Once I hit high school, I'm, I'm super. I'm an extrovert, um, but in high school, being homeschooled, um, I ended up through a lot of, there were a lot of family dynamic things going on and a lot of things in the larger family that were kind of keeping my parents busy when I was in high school. And I ended up kind of retreating to my room and listening to Reliant K and Switchfoot and Audio Adrenaline and just reading everything, you know, book like that John Piper book, Don't Waste Your Life. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I was like, I do not want to waste my life. (laughs) I'm not going to. book and it's going to tell me how to not waste my life. Um, And so like I was reading all these books and then also I was just so involved in everything that came my way that was a ministry related thing. I worked as a camp counselor at a really conservative all-girls summer camp up in Maine. I went to a Pentecostal youth group. Um, I remember making it's still very conservative fundamentalist Pentecostal youth group, right? And I remember the questions I would ask the leader of the youth group were questions that made him uncomfortable because they were too like I remember him him we read the passage about Jesus saying, Give all you have to the poor and follow me. And I was really adamant that we should take that literally. And I remember my youth group leader being like, I don't think we should take this literally. And I was like, why are we even here then? Why are we even doing religion if we're not going to give it all to the poor and follow Jesus? Um, <laughs> but I, don't, I don't have a memory of me not being really, really committed to the evangelical fundamentalist um, religious project, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that sort of drive was just, just within you, like from that early age, you were engaged, you were, you were all in and it, and it wasn't, did you feel in any way that you've, that you were coerced into that or was it really just for, for all intents and purposes, you, you were seeking this out and this was the stuff that was in front of you? Um, you know, that's also a really good question. Um, I, I really do. Um, I think the, the incredible identification with religion and the searching after 
the divine and experience of the divine, I think that just happened to me. I, I don't think I was coerced into that at all. Mm-hmm. The way that I lived that experience, you know, which was, you know, writing essays for plugged in online, the focus on the family website about why Spider-Man two pointed to the glory of God. You know, that was weird. Um, <laughs> that was really weird. <laughs> and unfortunate that the only way that I knew to express this longing for intimacy with the divine was rule-based and fundamentalism and legalism. And and the biggest tragedy for me is looking back, I had all of this desire to love God and to do ministry and to serve. And I felt called to be a missionary in high school because, of course, we all did in high school. <laughs> and And at the same time, I was getting all of these messages about women's place in the church, which was we... We, we weren't allowed to preach or lead or teach. And I internalized that so deeply in my sense of self and ministry and preaching and teaching. And I mean, I'm, I'm 30 now, and I haven't theologically thought it was, you know, wrong for a woman to be a pastor in nine, 10 years. But those messages about am I allowed to preach the gospel in a church, Mm -hmm. those are still there. Yeah. And that's like, that's really, really sad for me. And sad that that's still happening to little girls in churches. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to the degree that you want to talk about that a little bit, as far as, I mean, it's, it's essentially religiously veiled misogyny. Yes. Is what it is. Um, so what was that experience like for you as, as, as a, as a young girl, as an adolescent and, and as moving, moving on in your life and what, what sort of, and then you mentioned that it's been about 10 years since you've no longer felt that way or no longer believed that that had validity. Um, what led, what led to, to that change for you? Hmm. I know I'm asking big questions. Yeah, yeah, no, those are great questions. Those are really good. All the best questions are big questions. Um, um, I'll, yeah, I'll start somewhere and let me know if if there's somewhere that I'm missing. That also was a compound question. So yeah, I'll, yeah, there, well, there were there are a couple of there are two really two questions in there. So so um, first was your what first really was your experience um, and. And butting into to this misogyny in in the church, um, which is many people's experience, especially within evangelicalism, um, mm-hmm. and not not to say that it doesn't exist in mainline or or you know progressive churches and that sort of thing, but it is very common in evangelical churches. That's the first question. The second being um, just sort of how you how you moved away from that position personally. Yeah. So what it is like growing up, what it is like growing up as a little girl who is called to ministry and fundamentalism is 
really, I think the word I would use, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm still learning how to tell this part of the story too. So kind of back to the, to the, how stories change and how we tell our stories. But, um, I think the way that I see it now, I see a lot of gaslighting. Mm. It's a funny way to see it, but I think about how, um, my faith in, in places of ministry that I ended up in. So I, you know, I did intervarsity in college as well and was a leader in leadership at intervarsity. Um, and my faith and my giftings were celebrated in a lot of ways. You know, when I worked at the all girls Christian camp in high school, that's, I think where I, um, where I discovered, a lot of, um, my pastoral vocation, especially preaching. Um, and it was celebrated because it was all women. So I'm at this, you know, all women's camp of evangelicals. And I remember, you know, the first summer that I started preaching there and it just felt like slipping into a pair of jeans that just fit perfectly. Um, it just was such a delight. It was just pure joy. I was so happy. It was so fun. It made me feel close to God, made me feel close to other people. And everyone around me at the camp was really celebratory of that because it wasn't threatening because we're all women. And so the women are leading, the women are preaching in that context. And so I felt really celebrated. But then, you know, coming back from camp, back into fundamentalism, it wasn't even talked about, about, you know, women can't preach. It was just assumed, like, of course women can't preach. Of course we can't have a woman up in the pulpit. Like that would, that would, you know, like all the, the John Piper stuff about how it will take away from the fundamental masculinity and femininity of us if a woman tells a man what to do. And so what you end up doing is as a woman carrying with you this sense that there's, there's like a, a dirtiness or a wrongness or a badness about using those gifts, Mm -hmm. but you don't really have words to articulate that because in one sense, you're really being celebrated as a person with gifting for ministry. So people would, you know, people, the joke about, Oh, have you thought about children's ministry? Um, you know, every woman's heard that. Oh, so you're going to do children's ministry into youth ministry. Um, Women hear that a lot and we joke about it, but there is a gaslighting effect of everyone's constantly celebrating you, but then out of the other side of their mouth, they're saying, if you get up to to preach in front of this church, it's diminishing your womanness and diminishing the men who listen to you. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't really know how to wrestle with that yet. Because I still feel, I mean, I think the moment that, I think this isn't just in fundamentalism, but it's it's everywhere that men write and preach and make music and make movies for everyone, and women write and preach and make movies and music just for women. Mm-hmm. So men are the default and women are the subset. And that's in broader culture, kind of unspoken, um, but then in evangelicalism, it's it's spoken. You can do women's ministry, but you can't do ministry. And how 
women carry around that sense of we are a subset of the population. We are, we are, we are not fully human. We are a different genre. We aren't allowed to speak about human things to humans. Mm -hmm. I'm still, I'm still, I mean, a lot of that is, a lot of those are things that I still wrestle with really heavily. And I, you know, a couple of years ago, not that long ago, I went to a pink concert and I had this moment where I looked around the room and thought, wow, why are all these guys here? And I like heard myself think it <laughs> and was shocked that I thought that, that this fantastic musician, I assume since she's a woman, everyone that listens to her will also be a woman. But if I had been to a concert for just, I don't know, Mumford and Sons, I would have expected to see men and women in that room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so that, that is just, I think, a really heavy weight that women carry. When the light be upon me, may I feel in my bones that I am enough, I can make anywhere home. My fingers are clenched, my stomach's in knots, my heart it is racing, but afraid I am dying. maybe a little bit longer than oh, no that was perfect that was perfect <laughs> that's absolutely perfect i and another guest of another guest i've spoken to alice connor she she definitely put it that um the way what she said is because uh, she wrote a book about women in the bible mm. um she said that women's stories are universal too and to think to think otherwise is ridiculous. But it, to your point is that is the assumption in the overall culture, and it's a detriment to everyone. It's not. It's definitely a detriment to men to write off the majority of the population's experience. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so. Well, I remember a memory I have that's so sad. I've been thinking a lot about Beth Moore this week for some reason. Um, she's just been on my mind. And I remember at my Baptist church in high school, the women were doing a Beth Moore study and it was believing God. And it's an excellent study. I still look back on that study and it was just, it was an oasis for me at a dark, dark time in my life. And I remember my pastor saying from the pulpit, Oh, you know, the women are doing this Beth Moore study and they are being so moved and changed by it. And I am not going to lie. I stood in the back of the room and I listened to her preach for a minute or two. And I thought it is just too bad that she is not a man and that she could not be preaching in front of a church. <laughs> and I, you know, and I, and we all just like laughed in church, like, ha ha, too bad. My pastor can't be discipled by Beth Moore because she's a woman. Mm -hmm. And that that's just bizarre that we were just swimming in this water that Beth Moore could change a group of women's lives and spirituality. But but my pastor would feel guilty for for learning things from her. 
Like, what is that? What? That's, that's batshit to me. That is batshit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, um, or, uh, divinely justified misogyny. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. That is, that is the probably <laughs> most technical theological term for batshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's see if we can use this as a little bit of a, a segue, um, to, to the next part of your story yeah. and part of your life as far as going and going to college, um, and the, the next few years, as far as, um, you mentioned that you were part of university, uh, mm-hmm. and then earlier, actually, maybe before we were recording, um, you mentioned that you went to get your MDiv as well. Um, and you mentioned that your, your ideas began to sort of change probably around this, around this time, around a number of things, including, um, women's calls to ministry and their, their validity to, to preach and everything like that. Um, Mm -hmm. we can use that as a lens or we can just, (laughs) or we don't have to either. (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, I'll just take your question and jump into a completely different place. And, I'll <laughs> afterwards. and that's, that's um, fine. You're, you're, you you're a wonderful storyteller. So go right ahead. <laughs> yeah. So intervarsity. So I, I, you know, I look back and I, the thing I am most grateful for, I, you know, I'm still very religious. Um, and I see the divine hand of God protecting me from a Christian college. Um, <laughs> I really wanted to go to a Christian college. I, cause I was going to be a missionary and I was going to, you know, just save the world. And, um, I instead went to the university of New Hampshire and I am so grateful. I think at least once a month, I, I feel overwhelmed with gratitude that I ended up there because it changed the trajectory of my life. I think, um, mm. Partly because in InterVarsity, my uh, InterVarsity was actually where I met my first girlfriend. Um, so she was uh, she was part of the InterVarsity group. She was not out; did not she wasn't aware that she was gay at the time. I wasn't aware that I was queer. Um, <laughs> my other roommate was also not aware that she was queer. We all ended up coming out by the end of college. So that was, the, the room was blessed with queerness, I guess. It's <laughs> um, really funny looking back that there were the three of us were living together and all of us were, you know, committed to being straight. And we, none of us were straight. None of us were straight. Um, so InterVarsity, um, you know, I got, I got really heavily involved there. And then as I was getting more and more heavily involved and leading Bible studies and leading prayer groups and starting women's prayer events, um, I was falling for this girl that I met in InterVarsity and then wrestling with my sexuality, which, you know, has been 10 years now that I've been wrestling and really only recently kind of stopped wrestling. And I think that that was the first, you know, falling in love with a girl meant I had to start 
thinking about the Bible as an as a book of ethics in a serious way for the first time. Hmm. Um, instead of just saying, well, obviously we just do what the Bible says, clearly. Clearly, anyone who's not just doing what the Bible says is just justifying their own interpretation in order to allow themselves to sin more. You know, that was my narrative. Um, but when I started really critically reading the Bible about homosexuality and then about sex in general, it was just really distressing um, because the Bible says terrible things about sex. It says terrible, terrible fucking things about sex. <laughs> um, just abusive, misogynistic, patriarchal. Like I'm just reading these texts in in my scripture, my scripture that I'm just supposed to obey. And it's full of all this shit about how people should men should marry the woman that they rape if they rape her. And that'll morally clear the whole situation up. And I, it, it was so baffling, it was so baffling that I just kind of started blocking all of it out. Um, and a lot of what I remember from college was I was getting a philosophy degree and I was, you know, kind of secretly dating this girl, but then we just kind of break up every two weeks and cry about it and pray about it and then get back together. We did that for like two years. Um, oh my gosh, so much crying and praying and so much repenting. Um, and then I'm getting this philosophy degree and starting to critically analyze all of these things that I ever thought about truth and meaning and creationism. Wow. Turns out evolution's true. What? Like, what? And I remember a conversation with my dad where I was talking about how evolution is just true, daddy. Like, it's, it's, I, I don't know how to put it another way. It's, it just is what happened. And my dad said, if you throw out Genesis, you have to throw out Jesus too. And so at the end of college, I did that um, about, Four months after I graduated college, I had a huge crisis of faith where I was uh, became an aggressive atheist, angry, aggressive atheist. Um, a little Dawkins goes a long way, I always say. <laughs> and, um, a lot of Hitchens, a lot of Dawkins. I was like, this is all a lie. I've discovered everything is a lie. I've been lied to my whole life. And I, it, it was like, I don't know how to describe that level of, of rage. Like, I just remember feeling like I just wanted to light churches on fire. I was so angry. Um, because I had been taught my whole life that it was, it was all or nothing. Either the Bible was literally true or you were an atheist. And I had taken that very, very seriously. And then when it became clear, you know, I did a little bit of, scriptural interpretation, like learning about the history of how the Bible was put together. I learned a little bit about the Gnostic Gospels. No one told me that there were other Gospels that got left out. Like, <laughs> I remember thinking, no one told me this. Like, nobody told me any of this. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I did what the evangelicals told me I had to do, which was, well, I can't accept your reading, and so therefore I accept no reading. Um, and that was... I mean, there were some ways that that was like a great part of my life. I was just like mad. I picked fights with everyone. Um, 
you know, I was yeah. still a fundamentalist. I was a fundamentalist atheist. I was just, I was like, you all, I have discovered the truth and I will evangelize you until you also know the truth, which is <laughs> God is dead. Um, yeah. Yeah. Your early twenties are, are, can be a really good time to be angry. <laughs> oh my gosh, right? And I mean, you have a lot of like cultural, <laughs> you have a lot of like cultural leeway to be angry when you're in your Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I go back in time and just be like, oh, honey, it's okay. Just like let it all out. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, so a lot of kind of what happened from there was I ended up at a, through a long series of, of strange coincidences, I ended up at a a Christian study commune, um, Labrie, for anyone Mm. who's part of Labrie. Yeah. um, In England. And when I was there, I discovered the mystics, um, and not just the Christian mystics, the Islamic and the Jewish mystics. And it was like all of them were saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like Julian of Norwich and Avicenna and Ram Das and all, all of them are, are, it's like this thread of gold that was just running. And I remember thinking, how is everyone having the same experience regardless of their external religious structure? Mm-hmm. Like, how are they all tapping into this? And what is this? Um, and that was kind of, um, that, that was a new track for me. That was a new experience for me. And the idea that, that God, that the divine is not a thing we believe or practice so much as, as experience as, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's like the, what like the evangelicals say about it's a relationship, not a religion, except <laughs> they, and they're lying. Um, <laughs> But there was something there of, of the idea of intimacy that everyone was was kind of talking about, even though none of them were talking to each other. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like how, you know, the two people that discovered calculus at the same time, independent of each other. Right. Yeah. That felt like, like mysticism was the calculus of religion that everyone was discovering. And it felt like people can only discover that independent of each other if if there's something true there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, there was a, I looked, I heard Reza Aslan on a podcast explain that and pardon me. <clears throat> I heard Reza Aslan explain that in, on a podcast in this way that he said, um, every religion has exoteric and esoteric qualities mm. um, and ex- the, all the exoteric things. Um, are unique to the religions, but all the esoteric quality is identical across all of them. Um, and that he also illustrated it with a Buddhist saying. Um, I'm not sure whether it's ascribed to the Buddha or another teacher, but the teaching is if you want to get to water, you don't dig six one-foot wells. You dig one six-foot well. Mm. And uh, that in that illustration, you, you choose your religion, and then that leads you to water. <laughs> um, wow. So, 
I so oh, I love that. That is lovely. I haven't heard that before. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very interesting um it's a very interesting perspective sort of on comparative religion really. Yeah. Um and uh I like mysticism to me is still a very new thing, but it mm. is something that I find a bit of, like a bit of comfort in <laughs> in that way. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah. So so yeah, yeah, that 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 rings true, you know. Um that they are they all sort of ex- explored the same the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that actually that idea of digging the one six foot hole. I remember I had a friend in my philosophy classes who used to say that he believes you can you can experience God and find God in all the different religions, but he couldn't find God in any faith but Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that the only way that he could experience God was Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. that, something in that you know that rings for me too mm-hmm. as I went down in the river to pray studying about that good old way and who shall wear the starry crown good lord show me the way oh sisters let's go down let's go down come on Um, so I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your writing. Mm. Um, you actually, you, you, you do write a lot about, um, these different elements of your identity you've mentioned, Mm. um, in your, in your recent story that, that, um, part of your identity is your queer and, um, the journey you've had with yourself, um, in, you, you, and in, in your words, you mentioned that you sort of struggled with that, uh, and sort mm-hmm. of, and have recently become more comfortable with that aspect mm-hmm. of yourself. And that's, um, a lot of your writing, um, is very much in line with the title of your blog, which is in between here, <laughs> sort yeah. of, um, in between these different stages or these different formational times, um, Oh no, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> All this preface and then, and then I lost my train of thought. Um, questions. <laughs> um, uh, sorry. You're asking about identities. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Writing. Um, so within your, within your writing, um, I, I really like this idea, uh, that you explore about being in between. Um, one of your essays you, you, you have talked about, um, sort of when you realized you were no longer really evangelical, mm. um, and that was this this wonderful post you wrote about. Um, it's it's actually called Postcard from the Wilderness, Remembering World Vision. Mm. Um, and you you say I, I spent a lot of time this summer processing being evangelical or being an ex-evangelical or post-evangelical, and then you go on to sort of write this wonderful post, um, about what that was, um, what that was like seeing, um, world vision, um, that whole scandal from a few years ago. Uh, um, so I, 
I'd love to hear what hear a little bit more uh, about that particular experience, and mm. then um, over the over the last few years, like what what about um, what about that experience really was sort of a stake in the ground that this was mm. a, uh, like a a significant moment for for you and your understanding of the place you came from. Yeah. And the place where you're sort of going now. Yeah. 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 I think, um, yeah, that's a, another good question. It's, it's like you do this professionally or something. Like that. <laughs> um, so I think, um, yeah, after, after my experience at Brie, I kind of accidentally found myself sort of, um, rotating back into progressive evangelical circles, I think, cause I didn't really know where else to go. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, except it was to evangelicals. Um, <laughs> but I ended up, you know, in a lot of evangelical progressive sojourners and Jim Wallace and trying to, trying to find a name and refine an identity. And mm-hmm. I really thought that, um, evangelicalism was worth saving. You know, I thought that, that all of the, you know, patriarchy, systemic racism, nationalism, I thought that was kind of an unlucky byproduct or an accident to evangelicalism. I didn't see it as, as part of the roots mm-hmm. of evangelicalism. So I, I was really committed to advocacy and reformation. And um, if you're familiar with the Enneagram at all, which I'm aren't all the Christians these days, um, <laughs> I am very much a one and the title of the one is the reformer. And for me, the thing I kind of latched onto was I'm going to reform evangelicalism. You know, we gonna make it pro women and pro gay and racially inclusive and like not nationalistic. Um, and I, um, you know, I thought there was kind of like, there were bad branches to prune off of a fundamentally healthy tree. Mm-hmm. And I remember, um, gosh, the world vision thing, that was, that was, um, that was just probably one of the most heartrending things I can think of happening to me as a Christian, as an adult, yeah, adult Christian. Um, and for people who aren't really familiar with it, what, what happened in a nutshell was that world vision came out and released a statement and said, they were no longer taking a stand on the LGBTQ issue that they um, recognized that different denominations held different viewpoints and they wanted to hire people from all of those denominations. Mm-hmm. And so they were leaving the issue of church discipline and ethics up to individual churches so that they could hire, you know, PCUSA and Episcopalians and UCC people. Um, and they were no longer taking a stand. So they weren't even saying we are now pro-gay. They were literally just saying we no longer take a stand on this issue. Um, and I was, I just, I remember I was so happy. <laughs> like I was just really, I felt blessed and delighted and joyful and like, wow, really things are really moving. Things are really changing. And for me, it was, it was so much about, can we stop talking about what's right or wrong? And then just agree to disagree as Christians around the table. Like, can we say we have different opinions and we'll still love each other? Like, can we just do that? Let's, mm-hmm. just, let's just do that. Um, which is very much a passion of mine. Um, and then what happened was that um, 
evangelicals started calling and retracting their support for children that they had supported some of them for years. Right. So like, I mean, we didn't, we didn't do world vision when I was growing up, we had compassion international, but we had the picture of the kid on our fridge. His name was Christian. We wrote him letters growing up. Mm-hmm. Like these are this, this evangelical child support system is a very personal system. You know, you send presents to your kind of adopted child. You look at their picture. You write them letters. I mean, there's all sorts of dysfunction in that system on its own that, you know, we won't get into. But but the point is that this is personal. This isn't withdrawing support from an organization. This is saying, I'm no longer sending money to this child overseas. Yeah. I'll attract my financial support of this child who is living in poverty. Right. And I, I remember, like, I, I just remember being like shocked, like, sh- like shocked that who, who you, you were literally letting children die because you can't imagine a gay person working in an office of this organization. Mm-hmm. And like, it was, it was. I I remember being like angry and upset and confused. And then when world vision, um, changed their stance, I think it was two days later, one day later and said they, they changed their mind. Um, it, 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 I don't, I don't ever remember something feeling so shattered. Like it, it was so baffling to me um, that, you know, and I, I think I want to have a little grace for World Vision because I think they tried to do a good thing. I think they underestimated how rotten the roots of the tree were. Yeah. Which, you know, also what I had, I was shocked. They were shocked. People didn't realize how bad this was. Um, and I think there is a real sense that they, acted to protect really important work that they were doing. And I have a hard time faulting them too much for that. Um, but on another level, (laughs) just, I think that that was, that was for me, like, how do you ever trust those people again? Right. Yeah. And if, felt like a revealing of, oh, this isn't, these aren't branches that need to be pruned. Like the gut is wrong. The roots are rotten. This tree is gone. There is nothing to save here. Um, and I think I've really spent the last two years trying to come to grips with that, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I remember a piece from, I think it was, pro- it was probably the gospel coalition saying, um, you know, we, people should, uh, people should retract their financial application for the children, for the children, because, you know, we have to stand for the eternal truth of the Bible. It's like, no, that, that kid wants to eat and go to school. 
um, oh. screw you and your fake piety. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, I, I, it just sometimes also it feels like how do you be so like you know that meme you dense motherfucker. It's like <laughs> you when you read scripture and you read the sorts of things Jesus says to people who are running religious institutions. How do you not see yourself there? You know, how do you not see yourself as the people who 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 are tithing a tenth but but are not loving the poor? Like how do you not see that? I don't it baffles me. It baffles me mm-hmm. that they don't see a mirror in scripture with Jesus's conversations with the religious elite that yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know if they are they I know they're reading the Bible because we read the Bible <laughs> in my church growing up. God knows we had to have quiet times or we weren't going to heaven. <laughs> um, but I don't know what Bible like I'm I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. Like I I don't understand how you can withdraw support from dying children in order to feel better about a particular interpretation of the Bible and a purity test and not see yourself as the Sadducees and Pharisees that Jesus condemned. I don't understand that. Yeah. You have a really wonderful um, line in, in that, in that post about, about this issue and about world vision and how it impacted you. And I want to read it really fast. Um, you say, how do you tend wounds from Bible or Bible verses swung like swords? Can you tend them with other Bible verses or does your skin still crawl from remembering the blood that was drawn from those old weapons? How do we feel the heat of Pentecost as the flames that baptize the outsiders and open the mouths that have been silenced when you grew up learning that the Holy Spirit only came to the leaders and the organized and the ones with degrees and, of course, the men, always the men? Um, um, I I love that passage. It's so strong and evocative. Um, and really, <laughs> like, I, I want, have you sort of found that answer for yourself is, or is that like an open question? You know, <laughs> like it's such a big, those are such big, yeah. evocative, powerful words. Um, and yeah, I, I love the way you express it there that like, damn it. <laughs> what? <laughs> Next, what are we left with? Um, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, it's hard. Cause you know, I think there'll always be things I really miss about fundamentalism, you know, um, you know, answers and identity, especially. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really hard realizing I, I, you know, I, I used to know how to interpret scripture. I was wrong, but I used to know a way to interpret scripture and I, I don't anymore. You know, and it, it feels like I, I just kind of randomly pick a method based on the day it is. Um, like, oh, guess I'll just read it like this today. Like, I guess it's a metaphor today. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and that can, that can feel really disorienting to, um, or to feel like somebody will, you know, ask me, well, you know, what do you, what do you think about atonement theories? And sometimes I feel like I've, I've just picked something to say, you know, mm-hmm. not something I necessarily believe in just because, all of the answers have kind of been washed away very suddenly and you can't build a lifetime of religious answers in a couple years. Right. 
But you also can't go through life constantly saying to people, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to do with the 13th chapter of the book of Mark. Oops. I don't know. I don't know yet, but I'll write a <laughs> post and it'll probably sound really confident. Um, <laughs> and so that, that's something that I, I think is, um, is harder than I even have a name for in myself. That space of what do I do with the Bible? How am I supposed to read it? What do I do with theology? What are the things that I should, I should believe? I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, the, the, the number one thing is um, this idea of intimacy with Jesus, intimacy with the divine. And kind of, I mean, I think that's also why I, I love, I love the Psalms. I love the Psalms. I really discovered them in graduate school and um, they just, they are everything. They are everything. And they don't have the kind of baggage for me that the rest of scripture does. Mm, Interesting. (laughs) Kind of coming into these songs of worship and lament and joy and celebrating the earth and all of that feels like a place that the Bible is still kind of new. Um, so I, I am in the Psalms a lot, a lot these days. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And, and speaking as someone else that has a lot of baggage around the Bible, you know, it's hard for me to approach it. And I think it's great that you have found a way to do that. And I think that, you know, the fact that you're asking these questions and you're willing to admit that you don't know proves that you're really interested, that you're really thinking about this. You know, it shows a level of engagement that's, that is actually beyond someone that is, I think, just willing to accept a sort of pat answer. Um, The pat answers are so comfy. (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah, they definitely are. Absolutely. security. They're like a Snuggie for your soul. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god yes <laughs> they, they, they can be in, in my soul that's a great memoir title man <laughs> uh, uh, but uh but at the same you know as as you know if the, if it doesn't fit right then uh then it causes all sorts of problems but <laughs> you can't um, run races in a snuggie <laughs> what's that you can't run races in a snuggie <laughs> that's right yeah um but yeah, I mean, honestly, the the fact that you're being honest with yourself, if there if there is a God, then I'm then I know that God prefers honesty. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I I think it the fact that you're thinking about these things and in in such an open minded way is indicative of how much they matter to you. Mm-hmm. So, be uh, to whatever degree that gives comfort, I hope it does. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So. Yes, good Lord. Don't all of the ex-evangelicals need comfort? <laughs> <laughs> right. That is yeah. very much, very much what we need these days. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so uh, the, the, another, part of, another part of what, what you write about is you, you, you do write about um, your sexuality and mm-hmm. and how that sort of in, informs your identity and also how this has um impacted your 
involvement in churches. Um, you have mm-hmm. a post that is actually called "Why Am I Still Here?" In which you 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 write about talking to going mm-hmm. to a church that's uh, that wasn't affirming, but still staying mm-hmm. there. Um, this is actually something that's that's really resonant right now. Um, just recently, a, there was a website published called Church Clarity that um, that actually seeks to publish just public information about people about churches stances with for whether or not they're lgbtq affirming or not um and whether they have a clear stance and that sort of thing um so this is a major issue for lgbtq people of faith um and it's something that you've actually lived and Mm. actually had to had to wrestle within your life. Mm. Um, so if you, if that's something you want to talk about, <laughs> then, yeah. um, and it's something that you've written about. So that's why yeah. I just, yeah. why I felt comfortable ask, asking the question. Yeah. Um, but in what, in what way has, has that, and in the way that you actually have in many ways have still been in between, you've still been <laughs> in evangelical circles, you know, um, yeah. going to evangelical churches. Um, yeah. What another open-ended question for you? <laughs> <You're> <laughs> what's so I mean? Pitiful. What what's uh what's that what's that been like? Yeah, um, very, very strange. I think um something that I'm still a uh, a huge growing edge for me, a process that I'm in, um, you know, is that fundamentalism gave me a box for thinking about community. That was um, the box of everyone in this group has to agree on everything or else we're not really community. Um, And that, that was a, a terrible, a terrible box and pattern that I think I still carry with me in a lot of ways that um, I struggle with knowing how that applies to church situations um, because so I attended for about five years, uh, a really, really lovely church that was, um, Presbyterian. They started, when I started attending, they were PCA, which is the Presbyterian church that doesn't like women or gays. And while I was there, they moved to EPC, which is the Presbyterian church that likes women, but not gays. Um, so they're, <laughs> they're moving slowly towards justice, um, <laughs> That was very much my experience of the church, though, was them moving in in directions towards inclusion and towards justice, you know, with Mm -hmm. blitz between. Um, And I I mean, I so I I left that church in just May of this year, um, left on good terms with everyone, on good terms with the pastors, um, still close with a lot of the people there. Um. But the hardest thing about being at a a church like that that is um, loving but non-affirming is, frankly, the lack of clarity, which is why I'm so excited about this Church Clarity Project. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because (laughs) a lot of what happened to me in the five years that I was there, and I say this as, you know, I, I still love those, so many of those people, but... I, I was heavily involved. You know, you're seeing a thread of my life getting heavily involved in religious 
I was heavily involved in the church. I was there four days a week, you know, yeah. with Bible study and small group and prayer group and volunteering on Sundays. But then every once in a while, I would get just arbitrarily kicked out of something. Oh, man. Like, I get like an email or a text message or the pastor would come up to me right before the service started and be like, oh, you can't, you can't uh, lead the, you can't read the scripture out loud today. Oh, really? Oh, what? Wait, what? Why is no one communicating to me? Um, and it's looking back, it's, oh, it's almost funny. Um, but in the moment, it was terrible. It always felt like um, I was kind of at the whim of the leadership of this church. Um, and even though I had people who loved me and allies and pastoral staff that, that really loved me, you know, decisions would get made and then they wouldn't be communicated to me in an appropriate way. And mm. I would find out from someone else or in a back channel or, Oh, you can't do this anymore. Oh, you can do VBS. No, you can't do VBS. Oh, turns out you can do VBS. Um, oh, man. And it just is bizarre how gay people like the actual queer people in churches are not are just kind of tossed around like that just not i and i I remember saying to the pastor several times you know i know that this church officially is not lgbtq affirming i know that i know it probably won't change i don't have a problem with your policies i have a problem with your communication I would just like you to tell me officially what I can and cannot do here so that I won't be surprised. Um, but the truth is that that's something I hear from all of my gay friends who have been part of evangelical organizations um, and churches, which is often permitted to do something from one pastor and then another pastor will retract that permission or the elders say it's okay, but then the lead pastor says it's not okay. Um, and that's just like really difficult for gay folks because we're living life looking over our shoulders, not because of even the damaging policies that these churches hold, but because the churches are too afraid of being uncool to clearly articulate them. <laughs> um, and it's like, I'm, I'm, <laughs> we, we don't care if you're not cool. Just tell us that we're going to get kicked out of. Um. And then another thing, and this is a very... This is very true, especially in cities, is that a lot of pastors are secretly affirming. Yeah. A lot of evangelicals are secretly affirming in pastoral leadership, but they're, you know, the the combo of the good motivation, which is trying to slowly move the congregation and conversation forward, um, and they feel like they can do that better in a position of power, and so they stay, you know, stay in secret undercover. Um, and then the bad motivation, which is the people with the money are the straight white middle class men who are more conservative. Mm -hmm. And so these pastors often, often pastors will promise gay people in their congregation, the amount of involvement that the pastor actually honestly thinks that the gay people should have. And the pastor is acting out of sincerity and the goodness of their heart. But then when the pastor meets resistance in the congregation, the pastor will retract that. And it's like world vision or Eugene Peterson all over again. Yeah. Um, I don't think people in power realize how damaging that making promises and retracting promises is for queer people. Yeah. 
Yeah, that dynamic. I'm that, and I, I just that's that's. I know that's to to be true as far as the, uh, as far as these pastors wanting to be affirming or being affirming, but feeling like they're shackled um, and not prioritizing the people at risk in their communities. Um, Instead, feeling not even really realizing that this is like. Like pastors in coffee conversations, their hearts really breaking and going out to these queer people and wanting to reach out to them and say, you're welcome, you're affirmed, you can be here, this is great. And and like, I want to celebrate that that's the pastor's heart, mm-hmm. but they're not thinking, they're not clearly thinking through the ramifications of only making promises that you know you can deliver on. Right. Yeah. And that, I'm sorry. Like, uh, I'm sorry that that's been your experience. That's really, really hard. It, it has been, um, I mean, it's, I've, I've weathered it. I'm, you know, I'm feisty. Um, I, I am, I think people also don't realize how queer people, queer Christians, carry each other's stories with us. Um, and the stories that I have of my gay brothers and sisters at churches would break your heart. Mm-hmm. And I have so many of them. And so none of these events for any queer Christian, these events don't happen just to me, like in this one moment, Oh, this one moment, this church did this thing, but this church did this thing and then they did that thing to her and to him and to her and to him and to her and to him. And we have this, we, we carry this backpack of each other's stories with us into these Christian spaces. Um, and it's just, it's a heavy thing to carry that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And in your post, um, you made us look foolish, which is, which is about the Eugene Peterson uh, incident. Um, you you sort of close close it with one of the lines. One of the lines, and as you close that post, is loving the church is a foolish and terrible and beautiful thing. Um, um, yeah, <laughs> and uh, that's another really just wonderful and evocative way to describe your own struggles and also the struggles of many other people that that face similar trials within the walls of a church um and yet i in within your writing and within the way that you describe your religious experiences and and your your desire to understand christianity um there's seems to be something that still is captivating to you. Um, and I, I'm curious, um, this is some, for some guests, I asked this question. Um, and a lot of times it, I, I use different phrasing, but I think the the best way for me to ask to ask this version of the question to you is what why do you why do you stay 
you know, like what, what is it that that remains captivating? Um, and what is it that, that despite a lot of the things that, um, you know, leaving, leaving your most recent church community, that sort of thing, all of this, what, what, um, what sort of continues to propel you in this particular path? Yeah. You know, you'd, you'd think that that would be the question I would be most ready for. Um, I just, I, I really like the word captivating there. Um, the idea of being captivated because I think that is probably the best word that I have heard to describe why I am here. And I think it's because there is something in the story of God chasing, God being in love with us, God chasing us down, God being the one who makes covenants, makes promises with us that just is delightful for me, that feels that feels like the story that I've I've wanted my whole life. And maybe an atheist would say that that's wish fulfillment, that you wanted the story. And so of course you, but it, it feels more like just settle. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> it, you know, it's really hard to find words to talk about why you're in love. Mm. It's, it's especially when it's, it's with the divine or with a religious experience. But I, I would say my religious experience, the words I would use are probably words that you would use to talk about being in love, um, captivated or delighted or I like captivated. I'm going to use that. I'm going to take that word because I <laughs> like that word a lot. I feel captivated by the story of God as is told in the Bible. And I am baffled and delighted that I have found myself in that story. And I want to keep finding out what it means to be in that story. Hmm. That's great. You know, that's, that, that's, that is great. I'm, I'm really, you know, happy that, that, um, that you're able to engage in this, this new form of your, um, of your, of your belief, really. Um, like you, you came from someplace else and now you're in this new place. And I, I mean, you, you're, I, I appreciate your writing a lot because again, you're talking about these in-between spaces, um, these, these continual sort of, um, progression, um, that I think a lot of people, um, a lot of other ex-evangelicals or ex-evangelicals will, uh, find resonance with, you know, 
um, because because there are certain things that coming from evangelicalism are no longer compatible. <laughs> or like you said, the the tree is rotten. I think you know all of that's been made pretty clear in the last year. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the, <laughs> yeah. And and the way in which the entire industry has just capitulated to fascism um, yeah. openly. <laughs> um, but uh, but there's something really I there I'm I'm really glad that you're being honest and that you're being open and that you're willing to share through your writing this um this really this to to use some churchy words like to this journey you're on you know <laughs> so 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 yeah so um I'm I'm really glad to hear that and I that that is uh certainly uh resonant to me too it, no matter how I sort of feel on a given day um about things there's something about um learning more about a 2000 year old religion that mm. is compelling, you know, there's mm. always something to learn. <laughs> Actually, I had a friend I was texting with today about, um, this and she gave me, I'm actually going to pull up the, the best quote I have ever heard about leaving evangelicalism. I love it. Um, <laughs> so good. Um, where is it? Um, she said, Hey, she said, it's like realizing Hey, I was a part of this weird, abusive, patriarchal cult that used the Bible as a textbook, and now I'm out, and wow, that shit is whack, but I don't know, the gospel, though. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that is just exactly where I am. That's that's good. (laughs) That shit is whack, but I don't know, the gospel, though. (laughs) Well, Laura Jean, thank you so much for for sharing. Um, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you that you want to talk about at all? Um, I don't think so. I talked a hell of a lot. You're gonna have to do some really fancy editing. <laughs> Get no, this all it's, it's all good. I'll just I'll edit myself down. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you have a lot to edit, frankly. <laughs> I said a lot. Um, no, it was it was great. So many great questions. I. I feel like I got a lot of clarification about my story where I am from answering them. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you again for being, being on the show. Where can people read more of your writing and find you elsewhere online? Um, uh, my website is just my name, Laura Jean Truman.com. Um, and I do say a lot of things on Twitter and I have a lot of fun over there. Also, Laura Jean Truman. Um, pretty She's a easy. solid follow on Twitter. So. <laughs> I retweet angrier people to try to feel like I'm allowed to be angry too. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to be angry. Yeah. I don't, you don't need permission from me, but you are. You are <laughs> well, thank you. Anyway, so I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Laura Jean, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much.